Welcome to Soundscapes, the Swedish Chamber Orchestra's audio and video podcast. My name is Gregor Zubicki and I have the great pleasure of being your host today when I'll be talking to myself actually about the journey, the road to an orchestra, the historical road and the road for every musician. The last time we met, so to speak, I was talking about how the Swedish Chamber Orchestra came into being. And of course, every orchestra has its own history, its own story, its own reason. And I've been thinking a lot about how orchestra started off in the first place. Because the, the modern orchestra, as we understand it, I think is a creation of the 1700s. Um, and I was thinking that there's a parallel between the huge yachts of the oligarchs that we read about these days and the orchestra. Because in the same sense that a, a huge yacht is a symbol of wealth and an achievement and pleasure, so of course was the castle of the aristocracy. And a successful duke or lord or whatever also wanted to be able to present music, to have his own orchestra. And an interesting little parallel in this is an interview I read some time ago with a person who actually built, builds these yachts for the extremely ultra-rich. And it turns out that one of the most important spaces on one of these ultra-yachts is the cinema. They put a fortune into having a movie theater in the middle of this boat. Now, this boat will have five helicopter platforms and two submarines and 59 sun decks, but the most important room appears to be the cinema, which is a bit surprising but that you think that these people collect to see a movie which they could watch on their phones. But the idea of collecting and getting together and enjoying something together is still an important experience, even on a luxury yacht. And so it was, of course, in the time of Haydn and Mozart and before and after. So a lord, for example, Esterhazy, the fam family Esterhazy, they employed the composer Haydn to be their resident composer. He lived at the castle. He wrote all his music for them. And so there was a source of pride to the Esterhazys. This is our composer and this is the music he writes for us. Mozart, on the other hand, already when he came to Vienna, was, was an entrepreneur in a completely different way. He was trying to start his own concert series to sell tickets to earn money. So he would perform his new piano concerto, his new symphony, and, and create a, a, a sort of a event around his new music that people would come, buy tickets and listen. And this development, when we come into the 1800s, had already found uh, resonance with the middle class who were prepared to pay money. And so, for example, we have the promoter Solomon, who in London created an orchestra and invited Haydn, who by now had left the Esterhazys, to come to London. And, and he sold the famous composer Haydn is now in London, and this is his new symphony, and people would buy tickets. And finally, this whole development led to the building of concert halls, special venues, and to the situation we have today. And at some point in all of this, um, state, the government, the local government, took over financial responsibility for the arts. The idea was that everybody should have access to this. And in the system that taxation became stronger and there was a central government, we started to have pensions and all kinds of things that were supplied by the government and even the arts. Arts can be financed in a number of ways, and, and that's a subject I think will be interesting to come back to another time. But for, the, for this program, I, I want to focus on, on the idea behind an orchestra. So an orchestra, when it is financed, has to fulfill the expectations of those who pay the money. And in our case, 
financed by the taxpayer. We have to fulfill many functions. We have to be, we have to play our normal concerts. We do concerts for children. We have to play different styles of music. We have to be a flexible entity. And uh, of course, if the state finances, the state will have its priorities. This is important to us. We expect you to fulfill these functions. How in this process to maintain an identity as an orchestra is quite difficult. To, to develop, let's say, your own language, your own dialect. How can we be identified as an orchestra? This is in fact the Swedish chamber orchestra's way of doing this or that. Do we have a style of our own in Beethoven? Are we able to then have a style of our own in contemporary music? Where does the style come from? How do we develop this dialect? That is a really interesting subject. Also a subject that I'd like to come back to. Because what I want to talk about now is the individuals that compromise an orchestra. Because how do you actually get as a musician to the point where you become a member of an orchestra or become a soloist or do something else professionally? And of course, it all starts with, it starts with talent. And what is, what is talent? It's difficult to define, but I would say just being interested in music, wanting to express yourself in music is a talent. Then, of course, you have to have the opportunity to learn an instrument, to, to develop. And you do that through a music school or, or your parents are very engaged and find a teacher for you. But at some point, the little kid must show an interest in music. And from that first interest, from that first meeting your instrument, and sometimes it's lucky chance that you meet an instrument that you feel, yes, this is me. Sometimes people change instruments several times until they find the one they like. And some people, of course, never find the instrument and don't become a musician. It's, an, it's a possible alternative. And once you've found that instrument, then you have to put a, num a lot of years, a lot of time into actually being able to control and make that instrument do what you want. Some people... Are, are, are prodigies. We talk about the child prodigy, the amazing kid who can at the age of 12 or whatever play fantastic things on the piano or the violin or whatever the instrument. And this is, never ceases to amaze us. How is a person able to take this step directly from a child to an adult control? It has its challenges because at some point you become an adult. At some point you're no longer this prodigy and you have to, in a sense, take ownership of what you do in a different way. There's a sort of famous story of, of a teacher at some great school, let's call it Juliet for sake of argument, who a 12-year-old kid comes in and plays amazing, Paganini, whatever, on the violin. And, and, and he calls in a colleague, an older colleague, says, you must listen, you must listen to this amazing kid. And the kid plays again and it's fantastic. And he turns to his colleague and says, what do you think? And he says, well, I think it's amazing. And if he plays just as well in 10 years' time, it'll be even more amazing. Because there is something there that moved from the child prodigy to the adult musician to become aware of what you're doing and then to be able to control it is a big step. Most of the people who land up in a symphony orchestra are probably not child prodigies to start off with, but they are talented and they have a long ability to concentrate and to work on an instrument so that by the time they leave school, they are at a level that they can compete for a place at a music school, a music conservatory, 
an academy of music. They have different names depending on where you are. But once you get into that, you spend about five or six years really honing your instrument, really controlling it in every detail. Um, and, and not only that, but finding your own identity in this music. How do you want to play Bach? How do you want to play Mozart? Your teacher tries to find your personality in this. At the same time, showing respect for what Mozart or Bach, or whoever the composer is, wanted once with the music. So you're balancing yourself, your personal expression, with the demands that the music places upon you. And then you get to a very high level, so that you decide, hey, I want to become a musician. I want a job. I want to live. I want to play in an orchestra. I want to play in a group, a bigger group, and become more than myself. And so you get a job in an orchestra, but at that moment, everything ceases in a way. You are no longer the important element you were. You are now going to be a part of a bigger entity. And you have to, in a way, subordinate your own personality to the bigger personality. And this is a big step because an orchestra is a very hierarchical organization. If Mozart, through, through some miracle, were to be recreated, he would find the world very strange, the, the, the century we live in. But if he came into an orchestra rehearsal, he would feel completely at home because it's exactly the same situation that he would have known. And the reason for this is that it's the it's the way that works best. How do you get 20, 30, 40, 100 people in a big symphony orchestra? How do you get them in a space of few days to create a cohesive idea of a piece of music? If everybody's speaking, if everybody's coming with their ideas, we'd spend years. And there are some orchestras, chamber orchestras, who are founded with this idea of everybody putting something in. And then you have to take the time it takes. And at the end of the day, it's normally somebody says, well, do it like this. So the orchestra is a compromise. The orchestra is a compromise where the individual has to give up something to become something bigger. And it's the conductor who has the responsibility of tying all of these elements together within a short space of time to come with a clear vision to control the score, the score which shows all the different parts together and to have a vision that, with which the conductor then can convince the whole orchestra. The process of joining an orchestra is in itself a big epic because um, you have to play for the other players. You have to show that my playing, my command of the instrument is at the level that this orchestra can, can uh, require. Not only that, but you have to show that you are the kind of musician, that your musicianship fits the idea of the orchestra. So playing an orchestral audition is one of the most challenging job applications you can do because you're very much putting yourself on the front line. But the really weird thing about this job application is you do it behind a screen. Nearly all orchestras today have a screen so that the people auditioning you don't actually see the person who is auditioning. And we do this in order to create an even playing field. It should make a difference how you look what color you are, what school you've played at, who you know and who you don't know. We only listen to what it sounds like. And this is an attempt to give an objectivity to the process. So you're standing on one side of a screen, you don't see the people you're playing for, and you have about five minutes to convince them that you are really interesting. A big challenge. For some orchestras, there can be hundreds of applicants. Today, sometimes one sends in tapes, you send in your CV, you do all of these things just to get invited to the audition. And once you're invited to the audition, you play. 
to the screen. And the people on the other side, they make notes and they think and they meet and they discuss and they say, well, I thought number 13 had better intonation, but somebody else says, yes, but number 13 showed a lousy sense of rhythm and no understanding of Mozart at all, whereas somebody else will then say, excuse me, I thought that was a brilliant Mozart. Because it turns out that we all listen differently and we listen to different things. But because a jury consists of many players, somehow one arrives at some conclusion. And finally, one person is invited to come and may ha perhaps have a trial in the orchestra. Now, this is where we find out if this person is somebody that suits us, if this person is somebody with whom we can work. And once we offer a job to an orchestra, and I think this is the principle that just about every orchestra know, uses that I know of, then that person has a year's trial in an orchestra. So you spend a whole year playing with these other people and you haven't actually got the job. You're good enough, we know that, but are you the right person for us? There have been cases when orchestras kept somebody on trial for several years. It's a pretty tough life. And then once you get the job, that's it. You're somehow there and that's, you're in that little square, you're in that of the bigger hole. So it's really important for your personal satisfaction that the bigger whole can deliver everything you need as a musician. And this is where I feel the chamber orchestra comes into its own because it's the, perhaps the ideal compromise between number of players and the collective identity. At the same time, if you do play in a chamber orchestra, there's a lot of repertoire you will never play because you can't play a big Mahler symphony or a Stravinsky uh, Rite of Spring because that literally requires 105 players on stage. So there are always compromises, always choices, um, and which means that some people, of course, leave orchestras and join other orchestras, and it's the way life is. Lots more to talk about on this subject, but I think that's about it for today, and... I thank you for joining and listening and welcome to Next Soundscapes.